This is Habitat Matters, produced by Architecture Today in partnership with ACHO, a podcast series that looks at the challenges involved in putting biodiversity and green infrastructure at the heart of our built environment. I'm Isabel Allen, editor of Architecture Today, and this is 80 Conversations. My guests today are Steve McIntyre from ANS Global, the world's leading living wall specialist, and Ashley Welsh, a green infrastructure and biodiversity expert at multidisciplinary infrastructure consultancy, AECOM. I'm going to start, Steve, with you and ask you um, to demystify the buzz around biodiversity net gain. So everybody's talking about it. I think um, everybody thinks it's a good idea. But amongst architects, for sure, probably landscape architects, there does seem to be some confusion about what it actually is and what's required by law. So can you <clears throat> clarify for us, please? The, the biodiversity net gain is going to be a mandatory policy and um, it is something that architects are aware of and architects have um, a limited understanding of. Some have studied it and some have really started to look into it and then they find the challenges implementing it because they're trying to meet the requirements of investors and developers that want maximum return on investment on the land and when they start looking at leaving a site in a 10% better gain, biodiverse better gain than before, they find this is a challenge because we've got limited land, we've got limited space, and we want a maximum number of properties, et cetera, or developments. So green infrastructure tends to then get put to one side. But what we need to realise is that biodiversity and ecology is essential to our future. It's essential to our cities, our towns, and our climate, and it shouldn't be overlooked. The, the challenge is that um, a lot of our architects, consultants, find it's a real challenge to actually build in the green infrastructure into these spaces. because So they tend to override it or tend to overlook it, when we mustn't, because it, as I was saying, it's essential to our future. It's essential to our climate, it helps to uh, mitigate climate change, Pete Island effect, these other challenges by incorporating green infrastructure. So what we need to do is help everyone to realise that there is a massive power in soil and there is a massive power in nature to actually start bringing these uh, green infrastructure in other ways. So we need to look at the developments and see how we can make that environmental improvement. We can look at green roofs, we can look at living walls, we can look at bioswales, we can look at rain gardens, we can look at sustainable drainage. There's loads of things we can do, but there is a lack of knowledge in the industry to what can be done that's going to help the environment going forward, meet the biodiversity net gain requirements, and also create a better future. Do you go with that, Ash? Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, 100%. When I approach these things, I always like to think of biodiversity as, as being the, the, the one thing that underpins most of sustainability. And we've just had, you know, recently had the IPCC report out. Um, and we've got the, the COP conference coming up soon as well. Um, you know, that is now or never. Everyone needs to pull together and start to try and overcome this, this huge international challenge that we've all got. And um corporations, governments, everyone needs to pull together and start to consider these 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 things in 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 different developments and um more widely as well. Um they can be they can act as nature-based solutions. 
um, and they can have a considerable effect in large numbers for many ecosystem services, not just biodiversity. So having a sort of kind of a, a strategy that overweighs and kind of works and overhangs kind of um, sustainability, I think is really important. But Ashley, I mean, you're an ecologist, aren't you, by training? Yeah. So, I mean, when you're working with architects and with landscape architects, do you find that they have the knowledge to be able to make informed decisions or is there actually a whole new language that we've got to be embedding into education? I think it's a whole new language. And I, I don't just think this is an architectural problem. I think this is an ecological, ecologist problem as well. So until until very recently, you know, most of the ecology work that has been involved in in um, big development projects is centered around protected species. So like very old school conservation where you're focusing on bats or newts or badgers and so on. Um, and so the ecologists don't have a lot of them don't have that that knowledge to be able to go in and, and help the landscape architects or the architects with this this informed design. And likewise, I don't think the landscape architects are necessarily coming from it from the right angle either. Um, there tends to be a kind of, there's a void in the middle where you almost need like a biodiversity architect, someone who kind of transcends both of those two disciplines um, to be able to fill that gap. And I think over time it will change. I think we're starting to see that shift. I'm starting to see um, new landscape architect, architect graduates who are coming through, maybe people that have started in um, doing their um, academic career in, in ecology and then moving into landscape architecture. I know certainly if I could go back and change mine, I probably would have taken that route in hindsight rather than go straight through ecology. Um, but then likewise, there's a need for kind of ecologists to be trained to think differently as well. No, I was going to say, actually, I think that's really important because what we have studied for years is, as you say, we're doing a new development. We're looking out for the newts, correct? We're looking out for badgers. We're looking out for all wildlife. But actually, what we don't always take into account that to keep wildlife alive, we need infrastructure. We need green infrastructure. We need pollinators. We need nectar. We need wildflowers. We need our, our, our local flora and fauna, which is our indigenous landscape. And that's what we need to preserve. So I always tackle these problems by asking, what, what, is, what are the problems that this particular project kind of faces in the future? What, what do you need to overcome? I think that's the question that everyone, whether the architect, engineer, ecologist, whoever, needs to ask. There needs to, we need to somehow kind of work closely, more closely together from, from the off at the very beginning in projects. And we need to start kind of communicating better and understanding that each other's skills are essential for delivering, kind of overcoming those problems. At the very start of the project, if you know that, um, you know, this building has to meet so X, Y, and Z sustainability requirements and it has to meet a certain biodiversity requirement and maybe a certain landscaping requirement bring those all together and then come together with a kind of a holistic collaborative solution that can overcome them all and you're you're onto a win essentially so me and steve have spoken about this many times before and i always try and tell ecologists and landscape architects when you're designing your planting scheme or whatever it is for a development don't just think about kind of landscaping for landscaping sake think about what benefits that that landscaping is going to bring what is the primary objective of that landscaping is it for biodiversity because if it's for biodiversity you might go down one route and you might design it for biodiversity is it water retention is it air pollution amelioration it's kind of pinpointing that exact thing and then using as that as the way that you then 
deliver your design. And how do you factor in the costs? I know um, you've both done work with the biodiversity metric. How does that actually work? And how does it dovetail with our conventional protocols around the quantity surveyor's role? That's a very good question, because it comes back to initially realising the importance of biodiversity and how we value our future our climates, our environmental gain, which is what we're talking about here. The BNG is all about environmental gain. It's about improved environmental performance. If we go back 20 years ago, we didn't. We did a lot of soft landscaping. We were doing developments. We had street planting. We had tree planting. We had wildflower meadows. We had shrubberies all around the car parks. We had all this landscape going on, and we had a budget for it. And we didn't think about the budget. We just knew it was going to be landscaping. And it went through. We had a budget then to maintain it. Over the last 20 years, we've built a concrete jungle. And we've got concentrated on maximum build, boundary to boundary. And soft landscape has become less and less. Hence, we've tended to restrict the landscaping budget because we haven't had the land or we haven't sought the need of it. It's an education to, to get to the QSs, to the clients, to the investors, that ultimately we need to invest in our environment, which will involve green infrastructure. And as you're saying, it should be part of the design at the beginning. So any concept of drawings when they're first started has the opportunity to incorporate this biodiversity. You're listening to Habitat Matters, produced by Architecture Today in partnership with ACCO as part of their Habitat Matters campaign. Find out more at habitat-matters.com. And rather than look at it as an add-on to a scheme at the end, if it's built into the proposals, to the um, initial drawings, the initial designs at stage one, and it gets costed in then, then there's no surprises at the end. But I think the biggest challenge is that we try to add it or try and meet something three quarters of the way through the project when budgets have already been set. And people say, we haven't got the money for that. You're right. There was a sort of phase of putting in green space and trees and all these things. But I do remember very clearly there were lots of figures being thrown around about, you know, how much extra you could sell your units for if they're within five minutes walk of a park and how much a tree view added to the value and how much, you know, it's very much couched in the kind of conventional language of the market. This is a good investment and it will pay for itself. You know, there's much more sophisticated thinking now, isn't there? You can look at things like long term impacts on childhood obesity and the savings to the NHS and all the, the, the stuff which is sort of nebulous, but so important about well-being and mental health. And, you know, somebody has to make the case to an investor or to the public sector to get that money spent up front. Whose job is that? How is it collated? How is it quantified? And who says, yes, that's good data. That represents a good investment. We'll buy that. Yeah, we're delving into natural capital territory now. So this is, yeah, the quantification of habitats and biodiversity and the monetized kind of assets that they provide in terms of ecosystem services. So all of those things you just spoke about. Um, And this is really, I think it's really powerful. And this is potentially the way that we're going to influence business decisions in a kind of free market free market world where there's no regulation and, and, and kind of the businesses decide what they want to do themselves so i think this is where it gets really powerful um if large corporate companies in particular can can measure their assets 
be it green infrastructure or kind of rural, rural green infrastructure, they can then see the, the the worth of those assets. And then they can start to plan and go, okay, well, if this is how much a green roof or a green wall, a sustainable drainage feature or an urban woodland or something is going to provide us in terms of all of these other benefits to society and, and, our, and, our, and our economy, then suddenly it makes complete sense. Whereas previously, those assets never had any like real kind of tangible value to them other than they were just like natural features. So we're, so I mean, at Acom, we're doing loads of work with large companies and, and, and the trend tends to be is seemingly being that these large companies with large kind of estates want their assets measured. Um, and they're using that as a way to go, okay, well, this is how much our estate is worth and this is how much we can kind of enhance them by, and this is how much we can extend that, that value by. Um, so it's a new way of thinking. And I think whilst we, we haven't really seen it as much in urban areas yet, and whilst in urban areas, it's coming more from like local boroughs and councils and stuff. I think we will start to see a trend where it's kind of goes into the micro a little bit more and we start to see more intricate features measured as well in that, in that same way. And hopefully that will then also encourage people to, up, to uptake all the things that me and, me and Steve are interested in more so. Um, and this is all kind of being kind of, kind of underpinned by biodiversity net gain. So the, the biodiversity units you get from those assessments can be used to then attach on all of these other kind of bits of data that you spoke about to assess their value um, in terms of natural capital. So it's an interesting time and I think it's gonna, it's gonna go places. 20 years ago, it was a nice to have in essence, it was a living art. It was colourful. It was full of bright reds and yellow flowers, and it was, it was the thing in thing to have. We have taken the the. It's changed now. It's becoming a need rather than a want, because it is being influenced at local government level and national government under the BNG, and then um, local initiatives and green initiatives that are set on by local, by local governments. So we've got things like the UGF, we've got BRIAM, which is, needs to be a, thought about, and the BNG, which we're discussing. So it, it has an influence, it's being influenced a lot more by a need to get planning. Um, there's a number of projects that I've been involved with that unless we manage to put a biodiverse roof on with a wildflower meadow, or unless there was a biodiverse living wall with a number of wildflowers and we had bird boxes and um, insect hotels and pollinators, they would struggle to have got planning. In fact, they probably wouldn't have got planning because it was being influenced by the planning requirements. And that's where I think we need to see more of. And I think there is a need to educate planners. In fact, one local authority actually said that to me, that our planning department needs to know more about the BNG. And as Ash rightly said at the beginning, it's ecologists and architects, but it's also the planning consultants and it's the um, quantity surveyors realizing that they're going to, there is a cost, but there's a value. And the value is that we're going to, we've got to keep developing, we need, we've got to keep building, but we can build it greener in a biodiverse way. And I think that's where the influence is coming from. Well, on that note, um, Ashley, obviously planning policy is, is changing quickly, which is great. It's great to hear there's that real proper cultural change and that you're actually coming up against that on the ground, that pressure to move things on. Do you think it's gone far enough? Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting question. Um, so I, I've, I work in quite a lot of biodiversity game work. 
uh, do a lot of assessments. And I would say roughly about two years ago and before that, um, your typical kind of central city development, high rise um, sort of kind of building that you would expect features like green walls and, and roofs to be put on. It was really difficult to influence that design, really, really difficult to get like a biodiverse feature implemented in design, unless it was the aspirations of the client. Whereas as biodiversity again has become more mainstream, it's so, so easy now. Like it does, they don't even think about it. They, they realize there's a requirement and they do it. They don't even question it. Um, and you can actually push the design almost as far as you would like to go. So that's quite interesting. And and biodiversity again has not even been mandated yet. Like this is people getting ready for it. So I suspect that trend will continue. Has it gone far enough? I mean, my concern with it is monitoring how these habitats are designed and monitored. So obviously they need to be designed properly because otherwise they could fail, which we see a lot of unfortunately, which is kind of part of the reason why me and Steve have worked together and collaborated to produce these guidance notes. And the other is, is monitoring and, and maintenance. Um, there is currently nothing in the Environment Bill which is driving the, the, the need for biodiversity gain, which states that habitats should be, like how, how these habitats should be monitored once they're, they're created. And that's a concern. How is that going to be implemented? Because in the Environment Bill, it states currently that um, each habitat will need to be maintained for a 30-year period from creation. But there's nothing to say, you know, who's going to be enforcing that? So that's a concern how that's going to be done. And we know that local councils are really stripped of any sort of cash or funding. So how they do it as well. I mean, I've got some personal ideas about how I would use innovation to do it, but I don't know how it's going to be done. Oh, tell us your ideas. My ideas, and I don't know if this works for kind of urban green infrastructure, it certainly could work with rural green infrastructure, which is to use a combination of kind of artificial intelligence and remote sensing. So can we train machines to kind of remotely assess these habitats from aerial imagery to a really defined scale. And if we can do that, then that would save, obviously save loads of money in terms of surveying and, and other things and allow developers to put that money into management stuff like that. Wow, Steve, what do you think of that? Does that seem like a viable future? I think I think it is. And I think what Ash says is that we've got to streamline. I mean, we know... Everything has a price. In one sense, everybody's got a budget. And the more we can innovate and streamline, the better, whether it's the rural spaces or the urban spaces. And I think one of the ways we will streamline it is by creating networking, creating thoughts and sharing. Because a lot at the moment, a lot of things get duplicated in the industry. A lot of things get done two or three times, even on the same project things can get doubled up quite quickly. And I think a greater communication, a greater awareness, and as Ash said, innovating uh, systems would, would, it's got to be the way forward. You know, we've, going back to your question, have, have we come far enough? I think at the moment, there's still a distance to go in creating awareness because there's still a certain amount of percentage of people have kind of shut themselves away from it because it's complicated, because they don't understand it, because it's not actually come through government yet. It's not mandated yet, but it's going to happen. And now's the time to react, not when it goes through government, because then it will be enforced and projects will be so far down the line, they need to be reviewed. And that's a waste of cost again. So it's all about creating awareness now and innovating, as Ash said. Steve McIntyre, Ashley Welsh, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your expertise. 
You've been listening to Habitat Matters, brought to you by Architecture Today in partnership with ACCO as part of a whole series of webinars and podcasts about bringing biodiversity into the built environment. To find out more, visit architecturetoday.co.uk forward slash podcasts.